0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Chapter 1 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135-1327. to 1327. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. King and Baronage, A.D. 1135-1327 by William Holden Hutton. CHAPTER I. FEUDAL ANARCHY 1135-1154. With the reign of Henry I, the immediate results of the Norman conquest appear to have been worked out. The new race of English kings had taken their place among the great powers of Europe in right of their island kingship, no less than of their continental lands. The Church, as well as the State of England, had become less insular. For good or ill, the Pope's hand was felt in the land, even while his claims were checked and resisted. Society, influenced both by church and baronage, felt the change, and literature reflected it. Language was changing under the new relation with foreigners, and art was rapidly growing into vigorous life under the wider horizon. The old English law had passed away or been transformed into a new thing in which the feudal customs of the Normans were predominant. Lastly, the men who lived on English soil were a different and a mixed race. Such was the England which Henry I left behind him. There was much of change in the old England, but there was not yet much of union. The English folk had learnt to look to church and king to aid them against their new masters, the barons, who were still half-enemies. The barons were not yet content to lie down under the iron rule of a king who taught them that fixed feudal service was included in a still wider demand, the universal obligation of allegiance from every man that trod the English soil to the king that sat upon the English throne. While he lived, the stern Henry, as the English Chronicle itself records, made peace for man and beast. Stark man he was, and there was great awe of him, The highways were safe while he ruled, and the island was not vexed with war. Whoso followed his business and bare his burden, be it gold or silver, no man durst say unto him, aught but good. In words such as these could the English remember him who gave them peace. Now he had, so his foreign counsellor the archbishop of Rouen hoped, the peace he had loved in his lifetime but England plunged again into the distractions of civil war. There was soon, says the Chronicle, tribulation in the land, for every man that could robbed another. Henry I died at Rouen on the night of December 1, 1135. Of his lawful children, only his daughter Matilda survived him. She had been wife to the Emperor Henry V, and was now married to Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, the heir of the traditional rivals of the Norman House. From this union sprang the great house of Anjou, which was to have so vast an influence on English history. The Counts who ruled over the little state in central Gaul on the banks of the Lower Loire and the Maine, the borderland between France, Aquitaine, and Brittany, had long been a stalwart, stark, and sturdy race, whom their neighbors had learnt to fear. Fulk the Black, Geoffrey Martel, and Fulk the Fifth were great men who raised a small state into prominence, but there was a grim impressiveness about the race that seemed to come from another source. Legends rose which traced the line back to a count who had married a spouse of unearthly origin. What wonder if we lack the natural affections of mankind— we who come from the devil and must needs go back to him. So Richard I is recorded to have said, Geoffrey, the young Count of Anjou, was the son of Fulc V, and had married the widowed Empress Matilda when he was but a lad of fifteen. Five years later, on March fifth, 1133, the son was born who was to become the first of the Angevin house in England, and to inherit all the fierce tenacity, and the strong resolution of the families from which he was sprung. It seemed then to the great Henry I that his throne would happily pass to his daughter and her son, and to make the succession still surer, he made his lords and bishops swear fealty to the empress, and also to her little son, whom he appointed to be king after him. But no sooner was he dead than the oath was forgotten, The magnates, Norman and half-English, cared not for Matilda, who had only spent two years in England since she was eight years old, and her husband was the hereditary foe of the barons who traced their descent from the great vassals of the conqueror. Thus it was that when Henry died, the barons in England and in Normandy vowed that no one of the false race of the Angevin should be their king." They held themselves as mighty as any such southern lord, and both in the island they had conquered and in their own land they rejected the dead king's daughter and her handsome spouse. We will not have a foreigner to reign over us. So they spoke of the Count Geoffrey. There was another claimant to the throne, who, if he was no more Norman than Matilda, yet would not bring the Normans under an alien house. The conqueror's daughter, Adela, had married the Count of Blois, a house at rivalry with Anjou, but not unfriendly to the Normans. Their third son, Stephen, had been brought up at the court of his uncle, King Henry. He was a bold, hardy man, with the instincts, it seemed, of a baron rather than a king. From him, the barons in England could look for at least something of the independence which they still chafed at losing. England, it was said, had never been ruled by a woman, and now a strong man, the great conqueror's own grandson, stood for the throne. No wonder the barons were unmindful of their oaths. The church followed the lead of the claimant's brother Henry, who was bishop of the royal city of Winchester. But a stronger voice than either was found at the moment in the citizens of London. They met Stephen with acclamations, and in their folk moot, which King Henry had recognized as possessing wide powers over the great city, they, speaking in the name of the people of the land, chose him to be lord and king. Elected by clergy and people, as he himself phrased it, King Stephen was crowned on St. Stephen's Day, 1135. For the time it seemed as if the new reign might be peaceful as the last. Even Robert of Gloucester, the natural son of Henry I., submitted to the king, and Normandy followed the English example. Stephen issued charters promising good government, the freedom of the church, the suppression of wrongs wrought by greedy officials, the surrender of the forests which the late king had made. He soon crushed a rising in Normandy, he made his power felt against unruly barons at Exeter and at Norwich, and he brought David, king of Scots, Matilda's uncle, to agree to a truce. So passed the years 1135 and 1137. In 1138, the scene suddenly changed, and war was begun which was only to end when the new king himself was near his death. Stephen's own imprudence even more than his dangerous enemies brought about his woeful fall. Early in the year, Robert of Gloucester renounced his allegiance. The king seized some of his lands, but was unable to capture his strong castle of Bristol. The king of Scots, with a wild horde of half savage soldiers, overran the northern shires. Then the church stood forth to defend the peace of her children, and the good Thurston, Archbishop of York, who had been to the people of his vast diocese a great and liberal ruler, Called together the Ferd, the host of the people, to withstand the foe. The two armies met on the moor of Northallerton. The English folk took with them the banners of their own native saints, St. Saint Cuthbert of Durham and St. Wilford of Ripon, as well as St. Peter of York and St. John of Beverley, together with the king's standard. After a fierce fight, the invaders fled back toward Carlisle. Thus, on August twenty second, 1138, was won the English people's victory for their Norman king, to which was given the name the Battle of the Standard. Yet at no very long time after, Stephen ceded Cumberland and Northumberland to the Scottish king to buy off his further attacks. They were to be held as an earldom dependent on the English crown. But the danger was not over. There were risings all over England, which the king could with difficulty put down. The barons began to fortify great castles, and the king foolishly to grant them new privileges, to endow them with crown rights, to give them shares in the fines levied in the law courts, and to encourage their independence, just where he should have curbed their power. The great churchmen took alarm. Roger, Bishop of Salisbury, and his family were men whom Henry I had raised from mere poor clerks to be the founders of an administration, the organizers and agents of a great system of justice and finance. In their hands lay the secrets of government, the rules by which the king acted, the knowledge of the ways in which he made his power felt in distant shires. When Roger of Salisbury, who was justiciar, his son Roger, who was chancellor, and his nephews, Nigel, Bishop of Ely, the treasurer, and Alexander, Bishop of Lincoln, had given their support to the new king, they had secured to him the smooth working of the administrative machinery which had been in their hands for thirty years. They were haughty and ostentatious, they had great castles and large armed forces, but they were men of business, and to anger them was an act of suicidal folly. Yet Stephen, in June of 1138, arrested the justiciar, the Chancellor and the Bishop of Lincoln, and deprived the Bishop of Ely of his see. From that moment the government was at an end, for there were none to administer affairs, and the clergy as well as the officials were turned against the King. War now broke out in earnest. On September thirtieth, 1139, the Empress Matilda landed at Portsmouth with her half-brother Robert of Gloucester. The battles fought were but a small part of the misery that ensued. Everywhere the barons built castles and freed themselves from royal control. They put the wretched country folk to sore toil with their castle building, says the English Chronicle, and when the castles were made, they filled them with devils and evil men. Then they took all those that they deemed had any goods, both by night and by day, men and women alike, and put them in prison to get their gold and silver, and tortured them with tortures unspeakable. Many thousands they slew with hunger. I cannot tell all the horrors and all the tortures that they laid on wretched men in this land, and it lasted full nineteen winters. Then Stephen brought in foreign hired men to fight for him, and they were without pity, and men said openly that Christ and his saints slept. They spared neither churches nor poor man's land, they cared for no law of church or state, and the horrors of famine were added to the horrors of war. A day's journey might be taken without seeing a field that was tilled. Corn and cheese and butter were dear, for there was none in the land. Wretched men starved for hunger, some went about asking alms who were once rich men, some fled out of the land." Never was more wretchedness in a land, and never did heathen men worse than these did, for they forbore neither church nor churchyard, but took all the goods that were therein, and then burned church and all. If two or three men came riding to a township, all fled from them, thinking they were reavers, marauders. The bishops and clerks were ever cursing them, that is, excommunicating them but that was not to them, for they were all accursed and forsworn and lost. Thus the English chronicler bewails the miseries of his time, and it is with such words that the earliest English history in the English tongue kept up through so many centuries of peril and change at last ends. It was a time of unchecked feudal anarchy. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Nay, says a chronicler, that which was wrong also. The peaceful monks who saw and recorded these horrors bethought them of the days when there was no king in Israel, and of the fearful time when Jerusalem was compassed about with armies. Through all the years of war, the tide of success fluctuated continually. The king was alternately a prisoner and a conqueror, but was never able to restore the administrative machinery. The empress had her turns of good and evil fortune, but was never able to make good her title to the crown. Matilda dwelt first at Bristol, then at Gloucester, while Earl Robert took the field against King Stephen and was joined by Rafe, Earl of Chester, with whom the king had quarreled. Stephen was besieging Lincoln Castle early in 1141 when the two earls attacked him. A great flood had overflowed the banks of the old Fosdyke and the little river Widham and the city was protected by the fordless stream. But the army of the disinherited lords, whom Stephen had driven from their lands to bestow them on his own men, under the bold leadership of Earl Robert, plunged into the stream and swam across. A fierce battle followed, and Stephen fought in the thickest of the fray, till outnumbered and surrounded he yielded at last to Earl Robert himself. He was imprisoned in the castle of Bristol." On February 2nd, Bishop Henry of Winchester, who had in vain tried to make peace between the two parties, and who was the Pope's legate, as well as a great churchman high in favor with monks and clergy, now met the Empress and made compact with her March 2nd, 1141. On April 8th, she was elected Lady of England and Normandy at Winchester, and took from the Treasury the royal crown. She went on to London where she began to oppress the citizens, but they rose against her like a swarm of bees, and she was soon obliged to fly back to Winchester. There also she managed to disgust her supporters. Bishop Henry of Winchester took up the cause of his brother Stephen, whose wife Matilda of Boulogne was aided by the Londoners. Matilda of Boulogne was a heroic woman who gathered troops, confirmed waverers, and had the patience which her rivals so much lacked. In her, Henry of Winchester saw hope for the reunion of England and the restoration of peace. He reversed all the excommunications he had pronounced against Stephen's party, and pledged himself to do all he could to restore Stephen. Having again changed sides, he was proof against all attempts of Robert or the Empress to win him over, and with his adhesion, the tide soon turned in favour of his brother. The Empress was then besieged in Winchester, whence she fled on September 14, 1141. Soon after this, her strongest supporter, Earl Robert of Gloucester, was taken prisoner. On November 1st, he was exchanged for Stephen, and the war reopened under more equal terms. The Empress soon had to seek refuge in Oxford. Stephen pursued her from Sirencester. He entered Oxford on September 26, 1142, fired the town, and besieged the Empress in the strong Norman castle. For three months the siege continued, till on December 20th, when the Thames was frozen over, and the ground thickly covered with snow, the Empress was let down from the tower clad all in white, and escaped with four knights on foot to Abingdon, whence she sought safety at Wallingford and Gloucester. For the next few years there was grievous misery, but little close fighting. Geoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Essex, the worst of the barons, who had sold himself alternately to both sides and fought chiefly on his own account, died under the curse of the church while beleaguering a tower belonging to the monastery of Ramsay. The brave Earl Robert died too, and then the empress retired to Normandy. For a while from 1145 Stephen reigned without control. His brother Henry of Winchester stood by him, and together they drove Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury, into exile. In 1147 many turbulent spirits left England to go on crusade. The Earl of Chester was reduced to submission, But Theobald returned, and he and the other bishops refused to crown Stephen's son Eustace as joint king and heir to his father. Then came Henry, the empress's son, whom his uncle, David, king of Scots, supported, and the war was renewed in England. At length, when Eustace died, it was agreed between Stephen and the young Henry that the king should hold the crown while he lived, and then Henry should succeed him good peace was promised, and the restoration of justice and good laws. This was done at Wallingford on November 6, 1153. Henry for a while was Stephen's judiciar in England, but the king died on October 25, 1154, and then Henry of Anjou, the empress's son, came peaceably to the throne. So the nineteen winters ended. They taught men to seek to be ruled rather than to do what was right in their own eyes, and they made people and barons weary of strife. So Henry II was the first king since the conquest who came to the throne in peace and without a struggle. End of chapter 1